Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Religion, poverty, and cold. These are the icons of Appalachia, a community isolated by the thick wooded forests and the mountains that its people inhabit. Culture and religion have long been intertwined here, where folks are shamefully poor but fiercely self-reliant. Most are the descendants of the Scot-Irish who migrated to this part of North America after being forced west into the borderlands by the rich, elitist British colonists in the 18th century. But these clannish survivors thrive there, continuing to build upon their centuries-old traditions of firm self-reliance, fanatical faith, and pure stubborn will. But it was here, in the underbelly, of this poor region of Appalachia, that a treacherous religious belief began to form, that pitted men directly up against their own mortality as a means to prove their eternal salvation. It is the practice of faith-filled snake handling, a uniquely Southern ritual that spread through the churches and revival tents of the South by way of a colorful cast of characters, some of whom still practice today. My name is Brandon Schecksneider. And you are listening to Southern Gothic. Snake handling first appeared in the churches of rural Appalachia at the end of the 19th century. 
The region had suffered a tremendous amount of violence and turmoil during the Civil War. From the railroads of Chattanooga to the coal mines of West Virginia and as far north as Maryland, livestock were killed, farms burned, and homes destroyed. Worst of all, the new era of reconstruction that would follow did nothing to alleviate the shameful poverty in these rural communities, further emboldening the stereotype of Appalachia as violent, pessimistic, uneducated, and self-reliant to a fault. traveling ministers began to emerge, spreading a strict evangelical message through these isolated rural communities. The new form of Pentecostalism that rose from what was known as the Holiness Movement was characterized by a deep infatuation with spiritual signs, worldly indications that in spite of earthly hardship, Heavenly salvation was ensured, providing a fertile landscape for the belief in the wonders of serpent handling to root itself into. While the exact introduction of the ritual throughout these communities' churches is unknown, its prominence is most often attributed to one man, Pastor George Went Hensley. Legend has it, Hensley first brought serpents to his own congregation in Grasshopper, Tennessee, after becoming overcome with doubt of his own salvation. The man, whose religious conversion came late in life after years of sin, sought solitude in the wilderness to pray. Begging the Lord for guidance, he claimed that a venomous serpent appeared before him on the mountain where he prayed. The pastor picked up the snake, handling him without harm, affirming his belief that this was a sign from the Almighty that he would be saved. In that moment, George Went Hensley came alive, anointed by the Holy Spirit. Hensley would spend the rest of his life traveling across the South, from church to church, revival tent to revival tent, spreading the practice and his own brand of strict Pentecostal evangelism. To this very day, serpent handlers still point to the same Bible verses that Hensley claimed to be a clear mandate for the ritual. Verses 17 through 18 in chapter 16 of the Gospel of Mark. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Of course, some folks were bit along the way. But according to this extremely literal belief, if you found yourself the victim of a serpent bite, 
surely it was God's will. And if you're to survive that bite, it must be through His grace alone, not man-made medical intervention. This is what proved your salvation. And the flawed but devout people of the Appalachians needed this first-hand proof that they were indeed pleasing the Lord. They needed that hope and the spiritual high that came from literally overcoming the fear of death in God's name. This is why a man like Hensley, who struggled with a multitude of his own demons, was so drawn to the adrenaline and spiritual sign of the ritual. The impoverished and illiterate Appalachian pastor had been married four times over the course of his life, fathering 13 children. His ex-wives blamed these divorces primarily on his inability to produce regular income, citing his affinity for the bottle. And it's this struggle with booze that is said to have forced him to travel so frequently, fleeing jail time related to alleged moonshining. But in July of 1955, Hensley's long life came to an end at the age of 75 years old. He was bitten by a rattlesnake during a revival in Alpha, Florida. The man who had claimed to survive over 400 snake bites in his life would finally be killed by one. Over 200 people from all over the South showed up to the minister's funeral. But ironically, none of these congregants saw his death at the hands of the rattlesnake venom as a sign of lack of his salvation. They merely believed it was time for this holy man to be called home by the Lord, and the serpents were the vessels to do it. Hensley may have been the most prominent proponent of snake handling and one of the first to publicly succumb to its lethal nature, but many more would follow in his footsteps. Alabama pastor Glenn Summerford has become yet another infamous practitioner of snake handling. But his spiritual doctrine isn't what propelled him into the public eye. It was a violent domestic dispute surrounding the snakes he used in his worship. Summerford, much like his predecessor, Pastor Hensley, was a charismatic Southern preacher who struggled with alcohol, violent outbursts, and an overindulged affinity for women. He was born only a little more than a decade before Hensley's ironic demise and grew up in a family of 18 children raised by his mother and stepfather in a tumultuous household. It was this stepfather that taught Glenn how to use his fists, and once he was old enough, Summerford had hopes to profit as a prize fighter. Of course, he was never very successful in the endeavor, fighting less for money and more out of pride and anger. Then, in September of 1963, Glenn Summerford married his first wife, Doris. The couple had nine children, and although Doris claimed Glenn ran around on her 
and struggled with violent outbursts. It was ultimately a horrific tragedy that would destroy their family. In 1975, the couple's home caught fire. The family awoke at 5 a.m. to the blaze, forcing Glenn to kick out a window to save his wife and kids. Unfortunately, he was not able to save them all. Glenn and Doris's 18-month-old daughter, Sarah, endured horrific burns that would eventually prove fatal. Up till this point in time, most of Summerford's life had seemed to be merely a stereotype of what the rest of the world perceived an impoverished, uneducated, rural southern man to be. But now, at least according to Doris, the loss of his daughter seemed to change him, for better or worse. Not long after... Glenn left Doris for a younger woman. But Darlene, Glenn's new wife, had her own long history of issues as well. Multiple run-ins with the law had landed her in jail, and at the age of 18, Darlene lost custody of her only child, who was taken from her and placed in foster care. Once wed, the new couple aspired to do better. And for the first time, together they would return to the Lord and reach for serpents to help their salvation. Glenn quickly became infatuated, fasting and learning scripture, preparing himself to one day stand in front of his own congregation, just as George Went Hensley had decades before. Unfortunately for Glenn Summerford, these serpents that would prove his salvation would be the means of the loss of his own personal freedom. Glenn and Darlene lived in Scottsboro, Alabama, a devoutly religious community of about 14,000 located in northern Alabama, just shy of the Tennessee state line. There, Glenn presided over his own congregation of evangelicals called the Church of Jesus Christ with signs following, and snake handling was central to his ministry. As was typical of the many serpent handling churches across the South, the congregation kept the snakes for their services in rectangular wooden crates a couple feet long by about half a foot deep. Members of the church would capture these snakes themselves right there in their own backyard. Pit vipers were the most common in this region of northern Alabama. Species like the mighty eastern diamondback rattlesnake, timber, and pygmy rattlers. But of course the infamous copperhead and cottonmouth also called this part of the south home. And they would make their appearance as well. In a typical service, 
These serpents made their appearance by way of a procession that clearly resembled the traditions of tent revivalism, which were once so extremely popular in the South. Conservatively dressed men from the congregation would carry these crates in two at a time, one in each hand, as a band vamped on an upbeat gospel hymn and traditionals and hypnotic loops. The congregation clapped along joyously, worshiping in a manner no different than seemingly any other in the South for over a century. Some folks would sing and raise their hands in witness. Others grew mesmerized by the sight of the crates, growing anxious over what's inside and what's to come. Some would even speak in tongues. The procession of these crates would end at the lectern, the snakes placed in front of the church's preacher. He, just like his congregation, would get caught up in the music and ritual, clapping his hands in time with the band, joining his flock in its anticipation, moved by the Holy Spirit. And when the procession of snakes came to an end, Summerford took the spotlight. He wasn't just a devout man, he was also a performer, a southern boy with a warm charisma and a charming smile that made his undeniable passion for the Lord infectious to his followers. They believed in him. When the time finally came to begin the ritual of handling these serpents, Pastor Summerford cautiously opened the first crate, slowly raising its inhabitant up to eye level for the entire church to see, electrifying the room. Some holler praise in Jesus' name, others grin widely in anticipation of handling one on their own, and Summerford continued swaying to the rhythm of the music, building anticipation like a showman before finally handing it on to the first willing congregant of his church. The pastor would then turn and reach into the next crate to pull out yet another serpent. Over and over, he would repeat the process, each time with more confidence, each time with more bravado. Within minutes, Numerous snakes would be coiled and draped around the arms of the faithful. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Y'all, I want to take a quick minute to tell you about one of my favorite nonprofit organizations here in Middle Tennessee. It's called 
Poster Nashville. Now, this organization supports people during times of housing or medical crises by providing compassionate, temporary care for their pets. That's right. Poster helps secure loving homes for beloved little furballs when their human companions are going through things that might otherwise cause them to have to give them up. But since Poster began back in 2020, they've been able to reunite nearly 250 pets with their loving pet parents after they were able to secure housing, keeping families together through tough times. Of course, y'all, I have to say from personal experience, it's been an awesome program to be around. My kids and I have been fortunate enough to hang out with some of the pups. And trust me, what Poster is doing through a devoted network of volunteers is absolutely heartwarming. So if you'd like to help, Poster is in the middle of their annual fundraiser right now, trying to hit a goal of $20,000. And it would mean the world to me if you'd consider helping us get there. All you got to do is visit southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. That's right, southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. Glenn's wife, Darlene, was deeply involved in the ritual as well. And many have said that she took great pride in considering herself the best female snake handler around, even carrying pictures of her favorite snakes in her purse. She had been handling serpents with Glenn for over a decade, but on one weekend in October of 1991, Darlene would be bit numerous times by the same serpents used in these church services, landing Glenn in jail and Darlene in the hospital. On the night of October 5th, 1991, an ambulance was called to the Summerford's residence on Barbie Lane in Scottsboro. The paramedics arrived to find Darlene stumbling down the dirt road from her home, alone and seemingly scared that someone may be following her. She was brought straight to the emergency room and treated for two snake bites. Her hand had already begun swelling, burning a bright red as the venom rapidly spread through her bloodstream. She told the paramedics that she had been bit by a canebrake rattler, one of about 40 venomous serpents of various species that her and her husband kept in a shack behind their home. This shack was about 20 square feet, insulated with a gas heater. But the events that led up to Darlene's being struck by one of these snakes, all isolated in their own cages, would soon be up to law enforcement to sort out. According to Darlene, Glenn had begun to act jealous, believing that she had been too friendly with several members of his congregation. The altercations lasted for several days, but on this fateful weekend in October, Diane claims that Glenn got drunk and physically assaulted her. He then grabbed her by the hair and drug her to the shed out back, where he took a pipe and hit the cages hard, riling up the snakes, angering them. He then warned Darlene that if she didn't stick her hand in the cage, he'd push her face in for her. So Darlene complied, and she was bit. 
Once bitten, the venom of a rattlesnake takes only seconds to leave the serpent's fangs, piercing through skin and passing into the victim's blood. It immediately begins to decimate tissue and begin its toxic work on the victim's circulatory system, destroying blood cells and causing internal hemorrhaging. The onset of symptoms is almost immediate. Since Glenn had been drinking heavily, he ended up passing out in front of the television after forcing Darlene to write a suicide note that would supposedly give him an alibi. But in this moment, left for dead by her husband, Darlene was able to call for help. Glenn was arrested, tried, and convicted for attempted murder based on these events. But the congregation of the Church of Jesus Christ with signs following didn't buy Darlene's version of events. They stuck behind Summerford, and many believe that Glenn was right to have his suspicions about his wife's infidelity. For that reason, they believe Darlene must have been bitten because her faith wavered. Rumors she wanted to leave Glenn had been running rampant already. And some thought this was Darlene's opportunity to get rid of him without losing custody of their son, just as she had with her firstborn years before. Some folks even conjectured it was Darlene who tried to kill Glenn that night, bit while trying to murder the intoxicated pastor. And those closest to the Summerfords believe that one of these explanations was certainly the truth. Members of the Church of Jesus Christ with signs following truly thought that Summerford was the real deal. They believed in him and his spiritual faith. They had seen him cure the sick and cast out demons. They had seen him handle serpents and drink poison. He may have been a man that struggled and backslid from time to time, but to the folks who followed Glenn Summerford, there was no way he would have tried to murder his wife, much less do it with a serpent. Unfortunately, the jury did not see it this way. And Glenn Summerford was convicted for attempted murder and sentenced to 99 years in prison under the Habitual Offender Act. There are only two people in the world that'll ever know what happened between Pastor Glenn and his wife Darlene. But the sensationalist media coverage that came with his trial put both of them and their eccentric religious beliefs in the public eye, further entrenching the negative stereotypes of rural Appalachia and the small but devout communities who continued to practice the ritual. In spite of laws enacted to outlaw the dangerous practice by all of the Appalachian states, spare West Virginia, approximately a hundred deaths have been attributed to the ritual over the last century. 
As recently as 2014, Pastor Jamie Coots was bitten during a service at his full gospel tabernacle in Jesus' name church in Middlesboro, Kentucky. The third generation snake handler who had just been featured in a reality television show on the National Geographic channel titled Snake Salvation refused medical treatment and died in his home after completing the service. Today, it's believed there are approximately 125 churches in the Southeast who continue to handle snakes as part of their religious practice. But don't believe that there's a trick to this, as if these pastors know something we don't. It is scientifically impossible to become immune to snake venom. And successive bites over time often lead to the victim developing allergic reactions to the dangerous toxins. There's absolutely no concrete reason why the venomous serpents are not striking their handlers more frequently. Practitioners know this, and that is exactly why they continue to do it. Anointed by the spiritual rush of literally overcoming the fear of death and placing their life directly in God's hands while searching for salvation in these rural communities of the American South. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you've been listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independently produced podcast created by siblings Brianne and Brandon Schecksneider with the support of listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to receive even more content, including ad-free episodes, head over to our Patreon page today. The link is in the show notes. Lucky Lady Shacks. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.